1: Hi, everybody. My name is Cassie Dasko, and I am a multimedia and visual journalist here at the Holland Sentinel, and we're just going to kind of touch on some topics about anxiety and depression and what local teens and college students can do and how parents and other people can help when they see people struggling. Mental health is becoming a rising issue in the country, and through all the research that I've done, it's really affecting a lot of kids, especially now going into
0: a new school year. Uh, My name is Kristen Hunsberger, and I have a private practice downtown. I am a licensed professional counselor. Um, I've been practicing for about 15 years.
1: So yeah, what stressors do you see in teens and young adults as they're getting ready to start
0: a new school year? Sure. Um, I think there's a couple of main stressors that our kids today are dealing with. I think um, the first one is pressure to perform, whether it be um, socially, academically, or um, athletically. Uh, There's just so many different pressures affecting kids, and um, they often don't know how to deal with it when they feel overwhelmed. They don't have the tools that they need to cope with that overwhelmed feeling so they tend to to, to choose maladaptive coping skills or they're not even skills but mechanisms um, that actually end up leading to more stress and more social isolation so i think pressure is a big one and then um, as far as teens are concerned it's social i think across the boards and sometimes that looks like um, they're being bullied or left out um, there's a lot of cyberbullying happening on social media that is um, a huge part of why I think so many of our kids are depressed and/or anxious is what's happening on social media. The best protector against depression is connection, and our kids, believe it or not, largely feel isolated. And I think, again, that goes back to social media. 500 friends on social media, very few actual connections and places of real belonging.
1: And it's so much easier for kids to be braver online than they would be face to face because you can hide behind a screen name. There's you see so many TV shows and movies about people who make fake profiles just to mentally torture someone they don't like because they can hide
0: behind this false identity exactly or anonymity even yes i mean it's horrible what kids are saying to other kids under an anonymous name or a fake name um and you're absolutely right they say things that they would never actually say in person but the effect of those words is the same whether it's said on a screen or Mm -hmm. said in person it causes a lot of damage
1: and i find that like when you say it online it's recorded in print and you can go back and read it over and over
0: and over. You're absolutely right. And also what I found is that many um, students have shared with me that not only are people saying horrible things online, but then other people are coming along and liking the comment. And honestly, that tends to trip people up even more than the thing that was said. They can kind of decide in their head, well, that person you know, is always like that. Like, they tell everybody that horrible stuff. They can get over the comment. Mm-hmm. What they can't get over is the 10 people that liked it that mm-hmm. are essentially saying, we feel the same exact way about you. That That is just really hard for, for, well, for anybody, not just kids.
1: Yeah, and now, like, when I was in middle school, I didn't have an easy time, but I at least, Facebook wasn't a big deal until... I was in my junior year of high school, and before that, MySpace was a thing. But even that wasn't really prevalent when I was in middle school. So kids nowadays have it so much worse because school, you could go in, bad things could happen. And, but when you go home, it was almost like a sanctuary, mm-hmm. and kids
0: don't have a real sanctuary anymore. No, they don't. And even high schools, I mean, my son's high school, um, cell phones are allowed in the classroom. So kids literally have no break from social media ever. I mean, I'm sure teachers are not supposed to allow yeah. kids to be snapping in class. Kids are snapping in class.
1: <laughs> yeah, especially with the rise of like YouTube and that being people's job is a thing you see a lot. You see kids vlogging in classes now. Right.
0: And, and it's yeah, there's no sanctuary.
1: So what advice are you giving kids when they come in and I know that there's the classic take breaks from social media, but what other steps can kids do to help kind of give them that separation?
0: Real connection outside of phones. And this is where parents can really help with this. If there is an opportunity for kids to get together with actual real human bodies, <laughs> like other yeah. humans, mm-hmm. um, unless there's a really good reason to say no, we need to be saying yes. So building experiences, um, building memories together. I had a couple of different clients just this summer that went on trips in which cell phones were not allowed. Like um, Mm. the cell phones were taken at the beginning of the trip and returned at the end. These clients um, were clients that I had diagnosed with major depressive disorder for the entire year. I walked with them. They came back after two weeks of no cell phone use, and they were the healthiest that I have ever seen them as far as the depression goes. I mean, moving it from severe all the way down to mild and then within Mm -hmm. a month of being back and having their cell phones back right back in that severe depression category.
1: That's, that's just mind boggling. It's crazy because my job unfortunately does have me glued Mm -hmm. to social media and email. And I find myself obsessively checking my Mm -hmm. phone and of course, I'm not afraid to admit that like I'm an adult that suffers with anxiety and depression, and I feel and a lot of it sometimes is personal related and sometimes work related and. Mm-hmm. A lot of my anxiety came from checking my email and once I kind of tried to sometimes say hey I'm not gonna check my email until I get to work tomorrow it kind of relieved a little bit of that stress mm-hmm. I guess going now kind of switching from middle school in high school you have the transition of when kids are going into college and that is a scary 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 time when talking to somebody recently they were saying like it's hard like people sometimes don't realize how hard that transition really is yes. And I know you work with a lot of clients kind of going through that Mm -hmm. phase. So, kind of expand on that and what kind of advice you give them. Sure.
0: Yeah. In my practice currently, I see most of my clients are over the age of 18. I have a number of clients who are transitioning from high school to college and in college. When a student leaves home and goes to college, they often very much want to be independent and appear strong. And a lot of times they can appear strong. But nine out of 10 times, if you were to like peel back the layers, they're scared to death. inside (laughs) Because they're leaving everything that has ever been known to them you know Mm -hmm. so there's there tends to be a lot of fear what are are they afraid of they're afraid of failing they're afraid mostly again of what is my social life going to look like here am I going to find a place of belonging am I going to make friends am I going to be accepted there's also I think a fear to a degree of What's going to happen at home? Like when, I'm, when when the student leaves and goes to college, there's a little bit of a concern in their minds oftentimes of like, I, you know, I had a role at home and now I'm going to go. And how is my family going to change because of that? And for some students, it's will I still have a place of belonging when it's mm-hmm. time to come back home? Um, so if I were to summarize it all, it's just the it's the uncertainty, all of the what ifs and you know anxiety is the core of anxiety is loss of control well when you go to college there's a lot of what ifs and there's a lot of things you can control there's a lot you can't control mm-hmm. so naturally it brings up more anxiety
1: yeah i was lucky and i went to college close to home but for like people who are moving out of state to go to school that brings a whole new level of change but college is a very transitional time you're some people go into college know exactly what they want to do and are very confident in finding their place but some people go into college not really knowing what their major is and that I feel like brings a whole extra level of stress
0: yeah that's a really good point Um, I teach um, a class at a local college and most of my students are freshmen and we actually talk about that and I let them know they have a little bit of time they don't have to know when they're 18 years old and a freshman in college exactly what they want to do for the rest of their life. If you think about that, that is insane that we expect that Mm -hmm. of our 18-year-olds. So I try to take that immediate pressure off. You know, I talk to them about general education classes, and, like, while you're taking those, you can, you know take some time and figure out who you are and what you really love. And um, that is a big, a big part of it. Other students, you're right. They go in, they know exactly what they want. They tend to be really high achieving students, but then they have a lot of anxiety about what if I miss something? What if I don't get the A? What if I, you know, don't get the class I need and it disrupts my entire five-year plan. <laughs> so it just looks different depending yeah. on the individual student.
1: Yeah. Cause it's just, it's, it's insane how much pressure you have on yourself because you have to basically figure out your whole life in four years. And I've seen people change their major 20, like 10 mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. I changed my major five or six times is, and ended up exactly where I started. <laughs> <laughs> but slightly different, but exactly where I started. And then I also changed my major two weeks before I moved to college from pre-med to journalism. Uh, that's a big change. <laughs> <laughs> that's everyone's reaction. But... It was a. I knew kind of what I was supposed to do, but then I was also terrified because I was like, I only put two weeks of thought into this. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. It ended up obviously working out really well for me, but um, I had to go through a lot of trials. Something I found that people with anxiety and depression, I found mm-hmm. it's like they're not open all the time to saying that they're struggling, mm-hmm. and. A lot of the time, that's what holds people back to wanting to get help because they don't want to admit they're different. Yeah, you're right. And a lot of the things I found with people is that are really passionate about the subject is wanting to break the stigma. Yes. Like, don't be afraid to seek out the help. You, have you
0: seen a lot of that, do you think? Uh, absolutely. Especially, I mean, that's everywhere, but I especially find that we live in an area where people tend to um, value their privacy I mean, everybody does, but it's highly valued here. (laughs) And um, I find that it it sometimes is even harder for people – from West Michigan to be honest that they are struggling in these ways, whether the, because they perceive it as weakness or they don't want to be judged for it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly trying to reduce the stigma, both by using myself as an example, but also just letting people know that anxiety is not all bad. Like, it's not, it doesn't have to be a deficit. For many of us, it can be used as our superpower. Mm -hmm. You know, those of us that have anxiety, we tend to be super detail-oriented people and we tend to get things done Mm -hmm. unless we're in a a serious phase of anxiety, which tends to immobilize us. (laughs) But do you see like there's two sides to the coin? Um, And so, yeah, I try to just take that stigma off and let people know that they're not broken. They're not broken. And our our brains were wired naturally to to have anxiety. Like, it keeps us alive in some Mm -hmm. situations. Like, if there's a bear in front of us, we should have anxiety. (laughs) Um, Yeah what happens in an anxiety disorder is it's like the anxiety just, it goes beyond the the natural barriers and it starts to pick out danger in places mm-hmm. that there isn't danger. So we need to talk through that. We need to talk through traumas that we've been through or really scary situations. And the word trauma for some people are like, well, I haven't been through anything super, super serious. And you need to know that there's different levels of trauma. Like a car accident is trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents divorcing to a degree is trauma. Okay. Losing a home is traumatic. A breakup, the number 1 catalyst for a depressive episode in teen, teens is a relationship breakup. Whether that be with a significant other or a best friendship, it's a, it's a disturbance in relationship, number 1 precursor to a depressive episode. Oh, wow. So I in some that. ways that's considered a trauma.
1: That's yeah, I never I didn't know that statistic mm-hmm. about but if I think back to like it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I think A lot of people don't, they see the problem and then they think they take care of it, but then don't necessarily follow up completely on it. Because someone told me they're like, this isn't a one-day thing and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. It's not a two-day thing and goes away. Mm -hmm. It's something that's hard. It's not an easy, it's not something that just goes away
0: right away right right it's a process um a lot of times people come in for counseling and they're like how many sessions does this take <laughs> you oh, know geez. like they want to be one and done and it's it's a process that doesn't mean you have to be in therapy for 3 years but um typically at minimum a few months but again this doesn't have to be looked at as a deficit mm-hmm. it's a growth opportunity i learned more about myself in therapy than i did anywhere else um, and it's informed how I've lived the rest of my life. So um, we don't have to be afraid of the process. But, but you're right, if, if our kids are struggling, um, and their outward symptoms get better, like they, you know, maybe they stop sleeping all the time, or they start eating again, or they start socializing again, and we're like, phew, it's over. We need to know that probably isn't over. There's a lot of maintenance things that we need to make sure remain in place to keep them where they're at doing better. So you're a parent, you have
1: two? Four. four wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, four kids. <laughs> what are some simple tips you would give to other parents who may suspect that their child is suffering from anxiety and depression? And then what are what are some symptoms they can look out for? And then what are some of the first steps they can take?
0: You might need to repeat some of those questions. I <laughs> get pretty passionate yeah. about this and tunnel vision.
1: Um, what? Uh, so I would say, what are some of the symptoms that parents look out for? Let's start with that part.
0: Okay. So symptoms parents are looking out for. Um, this would be kids withdrawing to a degree that's normal. And once a kid hits puberty, they tend to pull away from family, want more alone time, et cetera. I'm talking like they refuse to come to family, you know, to join the family for dinner or to go on family vacation. They never want to come out, ever want to come out of their room. If you see, you know, excessive crying or anxiety is... That's an interesting one because we tend to think of anxiety just as like they're nervous all the time or they're having panic attacks, and those are symptoms. But anxiety also can look like stomach aches, so can depression, without a physical cause. It can look like dizziness. Anxiety can make people dizzy. It can make hands shake. Um, If you see a big change in social relationships or in grades, those are all things that will start to alert you that maybe something's going on here.
1: And then what are some simple ste- uh, steps parents can take once they think their child may be starting to suffer from anxiety and depression? So there's
0: this is a little bit multifaceted, multilayered. Um, the number one protection we can have as parents for our children is to have a relationship with them. That means that our kids need to feel known by us. So if we know them, then we're largely, or we try to be largely in tune with what are their symptoms and what's going on for them. Um, So having that relationship in place, then you notice, okay, something is going on here. Well, it really depends on your child. I have sons and sitting down Face to face with my son, eye to eye, and saying, Honey, are you struggling? <laughs> would not work. <laughs> um, boys in general, two of my four boys specifically, would not, they would just shut down if I sat down and had them look at me. So if I want to have a conversation with them because I know them, I get in the car and I say, Hey, let's go for ice cream. We're not looking at each other, we're looking out the window, and they're much more open to the questions that I ask them. So knowing like, You know, this works for this kid. That works for this kid. Um, I think again, reducing the stigma. If we sit down and we say, "Are you anxious?" Well, a lot of kids don't have language for that, so a lot of times they'll just be like, "No." So coming at it from a more informed, like a more informed position. Like, you know, I've noticed that you've been sleeping a lot. Do you think something's going on? How have you been feeling lately? Asking questions. I think all of those are ways to get into our kids' world. Kids are also teens, especially really good at hiding things. If they don't want you to know something, they can be amazing at keeping it hidden. And um, we can try everything we can try, but we can still, like, they can still pull pull one over on us. And I think it's important to say that we as parents don't want to take responsibility for that which isn't ours. Like sometimes we do miss things even when we try our best.
1: Yeah, that's I can definitely think of sometimes when I was a teenager that I was hiding things from my parents, but that's a whole nother right rabbit hole. (laughs) So switching gears a little bit, um something else that recently came out was the a law that was recently passed in Oregon that allows students Allows parents to call in and give their have their student take a mental health day, and it'll be an excuse absence. We posed this question to our local audience on our Facebook page, and the response was I think 61% yes, 39% no, that may be slightly off, but I think that's right. And a lot of the responses we got that were people saying, Yeah, it was a good thing, or this generation is so stressed out, but then you had other people saying stop babying kids. Um, what, How will that affect them once they get to the real world? That's what Saturday and Sundays are for. Kind of stuff like that. And what's kind of like your reaction of it? I know we've talked about it before, but kind of reiterate yeah. a little bit.
0: I think all of those responses have a place. I don't think any of those responses Absolutely. are off or wrong. Um, there's just so many ways of looking at this. Saturday and Sunday are for that. And yet in our culture and in our society, We often don't really rest on Saturday and Sunday. We're doing sports activities all day and family stuff and church and just go, go, go. And so Saturday and Sunday look very much like Monday through Friday. The argument about, um, you know, we coddle our kids and we're not preparing them for adulthood, well, to that I would ask we as adults, if we push and push and push and push and never take time to rest or to recharge, We are an anxiety disorder waiting to happen. That's how we get anxiety. We push our nervous system beyond what it is capable of for too long. And so I would have to beg the question, why would we ever want to do that to our kids? Will one mental health day really make that big of a difference and reset kids' nervous systems? I don't know the answer to that question, but I certainly don't think it would hurt. I take I mean I take mental health days. It took me 33 years to figure out that it was okay cuz I'm a high achieving perfectionist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um it has absolutely mm-hmm. changed my life and helped me to show up in such a more authentic and honest way all the other days. Mm-hmm. You know, in between my my days my days off.
1: Yeah, I I would take a mental health day usually about once a semester. I usually just would have a day where I just woke up and I was just like, nope, and just wouldn't go to school. And I usually use that day to catch up on homework, Mm -hmm. which I know necessarily isn't a mental health day. But when you're doing it from your very
0: cozy bed, it tends to make it a little easier. For sure. And when you feel (laughs) buried under 10 pounds of work and you can take that day and get yourself back up, like that Mm -hmm. takes an immense amount of pressure off. So Mm -hmm. it is... A mental health day, and you know, like everybody can determine what that looks like for them. I mean, essentially, if if we give them a mental health day, we are teaching them to check in with themselves and say, What do I need today? Mm -hmm. Do that, and that's an important life skill for our kids to Mm -hmm. learn.
1: One tip that I have for students when they're going to college and making their schedule. For me, it happened in my freshman year by accident, but then I ended up liking it so much that I continued to do it throughout my rest of my... I tried to schedule my classes so that I would always have one day free of classes. Mm-hmm. So I would only have classes four days a week and then I'd have three days off during the week. And that, that for me personally, that kind of helped it because I had one built-in mental health day a week.
0: Yes, yes, if, if a college student can actually make that happen. I think that that's phenomenal. But even if they had a day where they had less responsibility, like maybe just one, you know, just morning classes, but they had an afternoon free, I think for a college student, that is absolutely ideal. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And then for me, I now being an adult, I understand people saying that, oh, you don't get mental health days when you're an adult. Sometimes you do in a way that like, because the way that my job is set up, I have personal days. Mm-hmm. And if I need to use those days for that, that's kind of what it's built in for. But it's it would be interesting to see, because then you also have the people who, and this is a fear I have as well, of saying, how can it be regulated? Mm-hmm. Could people just take advantage of it? And unfortunately, that is a mm-hmm. thing that might happen. But something else is that I was doing research on the law, and um, they – interviewed a a set of parents whose daughter had unfortunately committed suicide but they had said if she had had the option to come to us and say I need a mental health day that could have helped facilitate conversations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely because a lot
0: of students are just scared they're you're right and I think it would be a lot easier for our kids to say mom I need to use or dad I need to use a mental health day than mom or dad I'm really struggling But mom or dad, I need a mental health day could easily lead into a conversation Mm -hmm. that opens up the door for us to understand how they're struggling. So that makes sense to me. So to wrap
1: it up, what are some simple coping strategies that people from like middle school through college can do if either they have started therapy Because I do believe therapy is a very, very good facet, whether you do it just a little bit or you do it like intensely. I think that's a very good option. But for some people who who therapy may be too intense, what are some simple copings? Like I love to journal. That's a way that I cope. But what are some other simple things that people can do?
0: Sure. Great question. Um, if I were to give one, and I'll try to give more than one, but the, the best piece of advice I can give you is actually a statement and it's body follows brain. So if your brain is ruminating on what's going to happen tomorrow at school when so and so talks to so and so about me, the, that's an anxiety provoking thought your body is going to gear up with anxiety. So I have one of my sons um, is really struggling with some anxiety right now. And and this is always what I'm working with him on is what what are you thinking about in your brain? And then I try to help him redirect his brain because laying there and ruminating on things is a recipe for disaster. It's just going to increase the anxiety. So distraction is a big – it's a thing. It's a necessary thing. So whether that means getting up and being active or – for kids that have nighttime anxiety, turning on like uh, music when they go to bed or even like an audio book, something to draw them outside Mm -hmm. of their their brains. And then I teach my son a lot about controlling his brain. We get to choose where we let our brains rest. We don't always choose the thoughts that pop into our brains, but we can choose how much real estate we let those Mm -hmm. thoughts take up. So that's just – there's so much more to that, but your body will always follow your brain. So if your brain is thinking anxiety-provoking thoughts, your body's going to follow with with anxiety. Um, Other good coping tools um, with anxiety, we tend to get a lot of internal pent-up energy. So any form of movement, whether that be going for a walk or sometimes I play like wee boxing with my boys. (laughs) It nearly gives me a heart attack, but (laughs) – um, it's getting out a ton of of energy, mm-hmm. anything that can get out energy, and again, social connection, like having somebody that they can talk to about it, hopefully in a in a you know a body, not just texting somebody but mm-hmm. like actually talking about it, whether that be a parent, a sibling, a friend, journaling is great if you were talking panic or um, anger episodes, sometimes it helps if you grab an ice cube. That really cold temperature in your hand is enough to switch that rational brain back on. Interesting. Yep. I, so, I've never heard that one before. Yeah. It works for a number of my clients. Interesting. <laughs> yep. The one
1: thing I've loved about writing this article is that it's given me a lot of just kind of things that I can use for myself and just mm-hmm. and things that I now feel like I can help others with. Because there's a lot of this stuff that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Because this is such a broad topic that you really, like, you read the statistics and it's just, it's mind-boggling. So, yeah, thank you so much.
0: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left.